Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. So I've just landed in Kolkata after 27 hours of travel, and if I had any sense of time at all, I'd probably guess it was around 9 at night. It's three days before a yoga retreat I'm leading is about to start, and I've given myself this time so that I can go visit a particular place, a place I've wanted to see for a very long time. I've got it all planned out, and if everything goes smoothly, then it should just work. Except, I've just found out my travel agent couldn't get me on the 6am train we'd planned on. So instead of a 4-hour train ride, I'm going to have a 6-hour drive on rural Bengali roads. And now we've got to leave at 4.30 in the morning. So my plan to get a good night's sleep is rapidly disappearing. Especially since I just discovered, while going over my travel documents, that my return flight is booked for the wrong date. So I'm on the phone with Emirates now, and the representative, whose name is Dickshit, is not very cooperative. In fact, Dickshit keeps me up till 2 a.m. My full night's sleep has dwindled now to two hours. The car comes in at 4.30, and we head west out of Kolkata. By 5 a.m., we're in a traffic jam, which seems to be comprised mainly of massive trucks moving cargo out of the city. By 5.30, all semblance of road lanes have disappeared and we're weaving in and out of thousands of trucks. Like, I've never seen so many trucks in my life. I've never imagined that so many trucks could exist. It's all trucks. And our six-hour drive has turned into a nine-hour drive. And it's one of those drives. You know, those alternating between boredom and terror kind of drives. It's the hottest part of the day when we arrive at Tarapith Temple. There's a glare, and you can see the heat waves rising up from the concrete steps. And in the temple square, there's what can only be described as a whole lot going on. Blaring loudspeakers and buzzing flies and the sound of conch shells trumpeting and the banging of drums. You know, all of it. Beggars in rags tugging at visiting pilgrims and Brahmins shouting at me to pay the inflated price for a special visit to the goddess. I pay my dues, queue up amid crowds that are jostling their way forward for a chance to see her face. There are shouts and exhortations to the Divine Mother as we enter the small, cramped shrine room. And then there she is, with her fierce and eternal and somehow motherly stare, red from the nose down, silvery white from the eyes up, like a lioness who's been freshly feasting on her prey, the goddess, Tata. Out the other side of the darshan room, I make my way through the crowds, and down the stairs past a chorus of baying dogs and sacrificial blocks where goats are regularly dispatched on the altar of the goddess. There it is, what I came all this way to see. 
There's a low grayish white mound about the size of a football field. Across from this gray mound, dreadlocked yogis and tantrikas sit in meditation, staring at the activity across from them. And on the gray mound, two men are tending a fire. A body's been placed on that fire. I'm not sure if it was originally shrouded, but if so, the shroud has burned off and it's just a naked body now. What was a young man? crisping on a pile of blazing coals. The heat has caused the tendons to tighten and one leg thrusts itself upwards at an unnatural angle, and one of the firekeepers grabs a wooden pole and starts beating the leg back down into the fire. As the flames devour the body, the naked yogis sit unmoving, that sacred fire right at the horizon of their eyes. This is exactly what I came to see. Today on the Emerald, dispatches from the cremation ground, Comfort, trauma, and surrender in practice. It can be funny listening to Westerners tell stories of their travels in India. Sometimes there's a tendency for people to make it sound like they've just braved dangers that none have ever braved, that they've been through it in a way that few have ever been through it. Then, someone might say, with the voice of an explorer or soldier returned from unthinkable hardship, I had to take a second-class train. Well, yeah, guess what? Millions of people a day in India take second-class trains and they don't really consider it that big of a deal. Take my little pilgrimage. So to see the holy cremation ground at Tarapit, a place where pilgrims, devotees of the goddess Tara, flock from all over eastern and northeast India, I had to skip a night's sleep. To see the great goddess herself, I had a nine-hour drive in a traffic jam amidst 3,000 trucks. So what? At any given time in India, pilgrims are flocking to goddess temples. You can see them by the roadside in Gujarat bearing red, tinseled flags. You can see them in Bengal, in Tamil Nadu, in Himachal, north, west, east, and south. Some walk hundreds of miles barefoot in the searing heat. Some carry heavy burdens. Some pierce their skin and fast as they walk. They put themselves through it, all to get a glimpse of her. The point isn't to get there in comfort or style, and in the case of Tadapit, the end destination is not comfortable at all. It's the opposite of comfortable, in fact. It's a cremation ground. Death staring at you in the face. Now why on earth would anyone want to go there? Have you ever had a close call in the wilderness? Maybe run out of food on a camping trip and found yourself in a storm and there's that rush of being in a situation in which you're not fully in control? And the thunder is booming and the hairs on your arm are standing up on end and your skin is slick with cold rain, but you've never felt so alive. Now which are you more likely to remember? Which are you more likely to recount to others by the fire? 
which is more likely to stick with you in the lucid space of memory? That time, or the time when you took a pleasant walk and nothing particularly notable happened? When did you feel more alive? When did you feel your heart pounding in your chest? Perhaps most importantly, when did you really feel part of something larger? Have you ever spent time in an ashram where there were only two full meals a day and you didn't get to choose what to eat? Have you ever been in a power outage or blackout and just had to make do for a few days? But what stories there were to tell after? The fact is that human beings may not ultimately crave comfort. As much as it is sold to us that what we really want are cars with temperature-controlled interiors and a life without variables, this may not be the circumstance that releases all the reward hormones of life. If self-pampering and conspicuous leisure time led to contentment, then the real housewives of Orange County would be paragons of spiritual attainment. And, well, they're not. If this state of accessorized self-pampering was the natural state of the human being, advertisers wouldn't have to spend billions trying to convince us that it is. The pimping of comfort as the ultimate goal of existence is not limited to mattress ads and self-driving cars. Modern yoga, along with a variety of modern-day therapies, has put forward a vision of the whole human being that revolves around comfort, ease, freedom from pain, and the healing of trauma. In many Western therapies, the goal is to release physical or emotional or mental trauma through body work or through counseling. A worthy goal, but also one that can easily become conflated with kind of a capitalist vision of the perfected self that is very much akin to an ad for painkillers, a life free of the discomforts of, well, being alive. Of course, this is also packaged as a natural lifestyle. Nature, which in this case means locally sourced skin lotion, or boutique hotel spas, or Ayurvedic healing sessions, or $15 cold-pressed juices. All of these things, in their proper time and measure, have something to offer. I'm certainly all for a nice comfortable bath or a massage, and I'm all for the processing and releasing of trauma. I'm not suggesting that carrying trauma around is a good thing. It's just interesting that the cultures that are actually closest to nature don't have the same view of trauma or discomfort that we do. In many cultures, what we call discomfort is actively sought out as a portal to the state of spiritual revelation. In fact, almost all traditional rituals that lead to the revelatory state of trance involve deliberate discomfort ritually induced trauma. Eagle bones piercing the chests of the sun dancer. Vision quests involving no food or water for days at a time. Prolonged dancing that leads to seizures and nosebleeds. At local goddess festivals in India, you may see someone charged through a fire in a trance. Or they may be collared in prickly neem leaves. They may roll around a sacred mountain on their bellies. Prolonged self-deprivation and intentionally administered discomfort. Some yogis and tapasvins in India take this to the extreme, with vows of self-mortification, holding one arm above their heads until it withers, for example. I've met sadhus who have committed to stand on one leg for the rest of their lives. And yes, there's the old cliché about the bed of nails. I met a Tata devotee in Orissa, who during the holy festival sits for a week on such a bed. And these are razor-sharp nails. 
Within physical yoga practice, the original emphasis was certainly not on relaxing or easing into poses or in releasing tension in the hamstrings or providing the yogi anything resembling comfort. There's a reason hatha means the forceful yoga. In practice, it meant restriction, deprivation, extended holding of poses, mortification including severing the tendon of the tongue, and ultimately a whole lot of pain. This pain was a direct vehicle to be harnessed in transport to the samadhi state. Contrast that with modern therapeutic yoga, yoga therapy, as it's sometimes called, with its emphasis on care and concern for each individual muscle of the body, therapeutic rehabilitation, release of trauma, and you have two very, very different worldviews. One aimed at the tried-and-true methods of trance induction, which often involve discomfort and pain, and the other that can be lumped together with techniques such as Swedish massage and talk therapy as self-care. Again, I'm not saying one is better. I'm saying that it's helpful to understand that they're different, and it raises questions about yoga and who and what the yogi really is. The seer in many cultures is specifically the one who harnesses trauma into a state of spiritual revelation. The one bitten by the wolf is blessed by the wolf. The one devoured by spirits has command of the spirits. Postural studies on indigenous shamans show a common lateral bending of the spine, a raising of one shoulder that comes from repeated surrender to the cataclysmic movement of waves of spiritual force at the expense of their bodies rather than for their comfort. This isn't an argument for a no-pain, no-gain mentality. I'm not advocating a bed-of-nails yoga retreat. I'm not advocating doing poses till it hurts. For some people, the most uncomfortable thing of all might be to not push themselves into a pose, or to sit still for 15 minutes if you take a look at many modern yoga students' attempts to meditate. Instead, I'm interested in a re-evaluation of where true comfort in this life lies. Sometimes, true comfort is not what we think. Sometimes, true comfort is to be found, say, right in the center of the cremation ground. For many, the ultimate discomfort is the knowledge that death is inevitably coming. And that means coming for all of us. As a friend of mine is fond of saying, last time I checked, the death rate is 100%. Or in the words of Jim Morrison, no one here gets out alive. You can see it everywhere, the fear of death. You can see it literally driving our modern world. In the agitated urgency that humans feel around the rush to succeed. In the feverish accumulation of stuff. You can witness a deep agitation at the horrifying specter that it's all going to go away. You can see the fear of death propelling the waves of traffic on the 10 in LA. You can see it beneath the plaster makeup masks of the Fox newscasters. Fear of death. 
So we live like the beings of Dra Minyan in the Tibetan mythological imagination, with all we could ever ask for right in front of us, but plagued by an unpleasant sound, the sound that whispers to us that death is coming. Imagine for a moment what it would be like if our society en masse accepted death. Imagine being at peace with its inevitability. Imagine seeing it for what it is, an integral part of the cycle of nature, the defining fact of our lives, that when realized can make this moment, this life, beautiful, blissful, here and now, and can take away a whole lot of stress about what there is to do and achieve in this life. Enter the cremation ground. The cremation ground holds a special place in the ritual and meditative consciousness of the Indian subcontinent. It is not only sacred in that it is a place where funerary rites are observed, it is sacred because it is, in a very real way, a transition point, a portal, a place of transformation, a place to burn the old and embrace the new, to destroy the limiting habits and patterns of the individual, and to gain the perspective of the universal, just as it is the place where the limited body is discarded and the spirit flies into its great rejoining with the ultimate. This sense of letting go of the old and being born anew, unhindered by the bonds of our old life, is of course exactly what the advertisers tell us we are going to get with that spa vacation, or that makeover. Little did we know that perhaps a truer way to get there is with a visit to the cremation ground. This is why yogis flock there, to experience what has been called in many Indian traditions, non-duality. As Kali scholar Michael McGee wrote, In the cremation ground, the nature of the goddess becomes clear and apparent. For an adept in her worship, the whole world is a cremation ground. And she, the true form of time, who by herself creates and destroys all, is personified as the pyre. There, after life, all mortals and their wishes, dreams, and reflections come to their fruition, a pile of worthless ashes. Yet, as with most other tantric symbolism, the meaning of this cremation pyre operates on multiple levels. The pyre is also the womb of the goddess. Or, inwardly, the pyre is the great fire at the end of time, situated within the center of the spine, generating great bliss, but at the same time also burning up all internal illusions during the bliss of realization. Certainly, it is a dangerous practice to look on the face of death without any fear. It requires heroism. So the practice is the province of Avira, who dares to look into the goddess's three burning eyes and be consumed by her all-devouring and pitiless fire. Or, as the Devi Rahasya says, O thou flaming, gaping mouth! fire of dissolution at the end of time, marvelous one in whom life and death and breath dissolve, O cremation fire, 
be favorable to me. So the cremation ground is the whole world, the universe in which life arises out of death, and death gives birth to new life, which dies and is reborn again. I remember walking through the streets of New York when I lived there, reflecting on the fact that in a short hundred years, none of the thousands of people streaming through the train stations, clustering at the traffic stops, rushing along the sidewalks, none of them would be alive. Only the buildings would remain and a new set of bodies, of souls, of lives would inhabit those streets. I've heard it said that Wall Street is a great cremation ground, and Madison Avenue, and we are maybe as skeletons dancing through a ghost world, in which everything, as the Tibetan texts say, is both ephemeral and ultimately real at the exact same time. So the cremation ground, of course, is our own consciousness the funeral pyre, our meditative awareness, the goddess herself, who burns the limited constructs of our habitually patterned mind away and transports us into oneness with the ultimate, just as life transports us into death, existence into non-existence, limited reality into universal oneness. This vision of the cremation ground as consciousness finds its way into Tibetan and Indian tantric traditions and reaches fruition in elaborate meditative practices in which cosmic cremation grounds are architected in the mind of the practitioner in great detail. In some Tibetan traditions, there are eight cremation grounds within the meditative consciousness, corresponding to the eight cardinal directional points. The most fierce cremation ground found in the East, endowed with skeletons found in the South, blazing thunderbolt found in the West, Dense thicket found in the north, auspicious grove found in the southeast, black darkness found in the southwest, resonant with kiri kiri in the northwest, wild cries of ha ha in the northeast. Each ground has its characters who inhabit it, its guardian deities, its resident spirits, its host of animals, its unique sounds and displays of light, all within the imaginative mind of the practitioner. The cremation ground becomes a psycho-spiritual place within consciousness, within the skulls of the practitioners themselves. Remember those yogis I talked about, sitting in meditation with the cremation fire at eye level. The fire is synonymous with the fire of meditative awareness, which burns away the corpse of the former selves and allows the pranic energies to rise upwards through and beyond the portal of the skull into oneness leaving only the faintest residue of white ash in their wake. The cremation ground at Tarapit is associated directly with this meditative awareness. According to some, it's said to be the place where the Divine Mother's blazing third eye fell to earth after her body split into 51 parts in a great holy fire. It's also said to mark the spot that, after Lord Shiva drank the halahala poison in order to save the universe and his throat burned in agony, the Divine Mother appeared to him and breastfed him to soothe his pain. 
And so, at Tarapith, there is the classic image of fearsome goddess Tata, wreathed in heads, dripping with blood, holding Shiva in her arms in the cremation ground and tenderly feeding him from her breast, comforting him with soothing breast milk there in that place of ash and fire. This is an image that challenges Western notions of divinity. If she is divine, why would she be shown wreathed in heads? If she is so fierce, how can she also be so gentle? If the cremation ground is a place of death, why is it too sacred? This, of course, is exactly how Mother Nature is, fierce and nurturing at the same time, death and also life in one cosmic cycle, at once a source of awe and even terror and also, ultimately, our deepest shelter, our comfort, there in the cremation ground, there amidst the turning wheel of life and death. To find that comfort takes surrender. It takes letting go of something. The practice always involves a death of some kind. Remember when I said that the goddess's face is white from the eyes up and red from the nose down. That face is the cycle of life and death itself. The red mouth is the mouth of the lioness who just fed, who just cracked open our notions of selfhood and ego and helped herself to a feast of it. The red mouth is dipped in the world of cause and effect and creation and limitless flow, in this world of consumption and creation in which all are devoured. And the upper skull, the eyes and cranium, are the vision of universal consciousness, ultimate, transcendent, one. Her mouth is the devouring light of the cremation fire, her white skull the ash of transcendent consciousness. Her mouth is life in its raw glory, her eyes are universal oneness. What can one do in the face of such a goddess? Where is the shelter, we could ask ourselves, among all this movement and intensity and death? Which is, of course, the question that faces us as human beings every single day. How do we find shelter amid the chaos? How do we make sense of a world that takes out both our friends and enemies, both young and old, vital and sickly, with impunity, that churns us into the ground and grows life from our discarded bones over and over again? we surrender to its great cycles. So the poet Ram Prasad says, Because you love the burning ground, I have made a burning ground of my own heart, so that you, dark goddess, can dance there forever. Tata's name means the transporter, the one who shuttles the devotee safely across, across the barriers of self-generated patterning and ego, across the life and death barrier, across what the Bakhtins call the torrent of the mundane mind. So it is that Tadapith has been said to be a place of major spiritual breakthrough. This is why the Tantrikas come here, because it is a portal through which a great letting go can happen. That letting go serves to transport the practitioner into what 19th century Tantric saint Bama Kepa, who lived in the cremation ground at Tarapith, and was said to have a relationship with the goddess that was truly like the relationship of mother and child, named as the highest vision of Tata, Mahashunyata, or great emptiness, but not the void kind of emptiness. Rather, a shunyata, as he described it, so full and brimming with light and sound, 
that it is as if it has all sound and light and potentiality within it always. She wakes up the stupid, he said, gives shelter to those who turn their hearts her way. And there is the shelter, there is the comfort, the direct revelation that within and beyond this wheel of life and death, within and beyond the chaotic whirlings of the red-clad world, is her, the ocean of universal consciousness, empty, white, vitalizing, energizing, as richly encoded with pattern, knowledge, bliss, warmth, comfort, and energetic transmission as the milk that flows from her breast. The cremation ground may not be for everyone. We may not be ready to cast all of our creature comforts aside and take the yogi's seat across from the funeral pyre. But it's always worth asking, where does the true comfort in this life come from? Does it come from times when everything we need is given to us on a plate? Or perhaps from those times when we feel the friction of the fire of life's challenges? From those raw moments when we are asked to sacrifice something of ourselves on the fire of this life? In those moments when we are awed at the power of nature and truly feel our size before it, when we get a glimpse of the vastness of time and space, and the preciousness of that glimpse soothes us, comforts us, makes us feel ultimately held in the center of this turning wheel, like infants suckling at her breast. To be breastfed by the goddess in the heart of the cremation ground is to surrender to this wheel of life and death and finally feel at home. This episode could probably use some disclaimers, like I do not recommend or condone casting all your possessions aside and wandering in rags among the ash and baying hounds of the cremation ground. One could say that this is not a beginner's practice. Maybe start with a nice yoga retreat in Costa Rica or a visit to a Ganesh temple or something. Ganesh likes sweets and flowers. He's very approachable. This episode has references to several books and articles and TV shows. The Magic of Kali by Mike McGee, The Devi Rahasya, The Poems of Ram Prasad Sen, Offering Flowers Feeding Skulls by June McDaniel, and, of course, The Real Housewives of the Cremation Ground that is Orange County. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the emerald podcast there are patronage levels starting for as low as six dollars per month and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site i hope you enjoy today's episode and until next time may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Thank you.